If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We finished last week in Genesis chapter 2 with God resting on the seventh day in verse 3. And so this morning, uh, we're going to pick back up with Genesis 2, and we're going to work through verses 4 through 17. If you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, if you're uh, this has been a long first time in a long time, maybe uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Uh, the Bible is actually a library of 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament, and Genesis is a part of the Bible called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. It uh, covers our beginnings, and just to keep up the tradition that we've continued over the last two or three weeks. We started with Cezanne. Last week we talked about stained glass windows of the Middle Ages in Europe. And so this morning I want to show you a picture uh, of, called The Creation of Adam uh, by Michelangelo. Uh, many of you have seen it. Um, it's the fresco on the ceiling of the, the Sistine Chapel. Raise your hand if you've been there. I'm told that if you ever go to Rome, you're supposed to see it. I have to embarrassingly admit that I went to Rome, and on the day that we, it was a free day, we were supposed to go to the Vatican all day, and uh, and me and a guy named Matt decided to rent some scooters, and uh, just to get lost in Rome and try to find our way back. Uh, That was our plan, and so we left uh, at the same time that everybody else was going into the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. Uh, we got on these scooters and, and toured Rome for the next eight hours and intentionally got as lost as we could for the first hours, the first four hours, and then tried to get back just using our own wits uh, for the next four hours. It was a, remember, a memorable day, but um, if I'm back in Rome, I, sh- I should probably go see the Sistine Chapel instead. Uh, is Michelangelo's depiction uh, of the creation of Adam correct? Probably not. Uh, probably in many ways not correct at all. Uh, but this morning we're going to focus in on, on Genesis 2 verses 4 through 17. Try to be shaped more biblically from the text and zoom in on this one part of the six day creation. Now just at the outset before we jump into the text, Genesis 2, uh, it can pose some problems. It has posed problems um, theologically in the past and at first glance uh, many read Genesis 2 and think that this is altogether a separate creation account. Genesis 1 gives one account of six days of creation plus the seventh day of rest, and then Genesis 2 seems to be uh, an altogether different account, maybe even by a different author, uh, maybe even from a different time period. Uh, Textual criticism that arose in the last three uh, centuries have have, uh, really pulled apart the Pentateuch as uh, attributed to four different authors. Uh, We don't need to go into all that, other than to say, modern day commentaries have really kind of pushed back against the, divi- the division of the Pentateuch and really seen, uh, seem to uh, see it as a whole, a unified whole by an author with some redaction and addition by a later narrator. And so we can see and argue for cohesion in authorship and content, especially when it comes to Genesis 1 and 2. When we look at Genesis 2, we don't have to see this as a separate creation account. Um, We can see it as a cohesive unit. Genesis 1 gives us the overview, the big picture, uh, the entire stained glass window, if you were here last week. And Genesis 2 goes from the bigger picture down into the specifics of days 3 and 6. 
the, the name of God, Elohim, in Genesis 1, and the covenant name of God, Yahweh, uh, often not even ever sounded out, but spelled out Y-H-W-H, the, the name of the Lord that is too holy for uh, faithful Jews to even utter. Uh, often in your Bible, you'll see it as all caps letters L-O-R-D, that designates the word Yahweh or Lord uh, as the covenant name of God, the personal name of God. And this is the first time that Elohim from Genesis chapter 1 and Yahweh from Lord uh, is combined. It's combined multiple times in Genesis 2. So even literary, in, in literary ways, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 have some cohesion and some, some symmetry, and we'll get into that a little bit. So while Genesis 1 might give us the overview, the big picture, uh, Genesis 2 zooms in on the specific environment and atmospheric conditions um, of the creation of animals and the creation of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. But before we get too far into that, let me just sort of pick back up and give you the big idea of the passage and today's sermon. And so if you're, if you're writing this down or you're taking notes, uh, we're going to talk about the Garden of Eden, and this is where we'll kind of angle toward the end of the sermon. Rather than us looking back and mourning the loss of the Garden Paradise Eden, we should rather look forward to and long for the future and better Eden revealed in Revelation 20 and 22. Rather than looking back and mourning the loss of this ancient paradise, we should rather look forward to and long for this future and better Eden that those who are in Christ will enjoy forever. This world is not your ultimate destination. This world is not your home. You shouldn't feel comfortable here. You should feel out of place more and more and more in this culture. We're sojourners here. Scripture says that we're citizens not of this nation, but of another nation, a future kingdom. And as citizens of that nation, we should reflect the attitudes and the appetites and the desires, not of this culture and of these times, but, but of our King and our Creator and of this Word. C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. For those of you who are born again in Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, your uh, tastes and appetites and your at-homeness here should be more and more unsettled. Have you ever watched a movie that you didn't watch for like 30 years? Right? Anybody ever have that experience? You saw a movie in your childhood or in your teenage years or maybe even in your 20s. And for me, a lot of those movies, I was not a believer. And then I had this sort of nostalgic view 20 years later or something. And I thought, I'm going to put that movie on. And, and within minutes, it's just, oh, just a bad taste. And it's distasteful. And the jokes and the language and the, everything about it seems uh, not the way I remembered it. That's sort of a small picture of the way in which as we grow in Christ and our affections for the King increase, our desires for this world and our situation at being at home here should feel more and more uncomfortable. That's the trajectory of our sanctification. We want our understanding of this Garden of Eden to spur our longing for your eternal dwelling place. 
The future in Better Eden is uh, revealed in Revelation chapter 20 and 22, and we'll get there at the end of the message. And we should always read Genesis with Revelation in mind. That was one of the beginning points of this sermon series. The foundations were that we understand Genesis through the entire uh, book of the Bible, through the entire Revelation. And so uh, we understand the beginning with the end in sight. What should you learn about the original Garden of Eden and your place within it? So you should know how to live now and know what you're looking forward to. Because what you know about the future changes the way you live today. I've had four months to lose so much weight to fit into a suit for a wedding this weekend. Right? The last four months right, have been this sort of I'm living each day with the future in mind. I've got to squeeze into this suit I bought at a different version of myself, right? And I'm down to the wire. I mean, this is going to be the week, right? But I've had months and months and months and months and months and months knowing this to prepare for it. But the reality is, um, I lived differently each day in light of the future. And if you have ever run a race, you don't show up race day and just say, that's a good day to start running, right? You, you prepare weeks and weeks and months in advance. For any competition, you prepare in your mindset, your attitude, your behaviors, your work ethic. You, you do things differently today, whether it's skill or training for a trade, education, being an apprentice. Everything you do today is done differently in light of what you are looking forward to and have coming up. And don't miss the... The reason why I'm telling you this, the reason, if you have your eschatology right, the doctrine of end times, where you're going to be, who you're going to be with, if you understand the end times, the book of Revelation, Thessalonians, the coming of the Lord, the, the eternal dwelling, the day of judgment, all those things, you will live differently in light of eternity when you understand the end. And this begins with understanding the beginning. Because what happens in Genesis often finds its fulfillment in Revelation. All these themes, all these key threads, the Spirit fluttering above the waters, the light created before the sun because the glory of God gives its light. In Genesis 1, we see the same thing in Revelation 20, 21, and 22 with the, with the eternal dwelling place. The creation of heaven and earth uh, in the end, the abolishment of heaven and earth and the new heavens and the new earth. All of these things that start in Genesis 1 and 2. This is why we call this series Foundations. Because if you understand what happened and you understand what's going to happen, it's on you to live differently today in light of those realities. So let's get into the text in Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to do it a little differently today. I'm going to read through the text and make a couple of observations and points along the way. Uh, and so let's start in verse 4. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now I could tell you a little bit more about the literary structure and the chiastic form of um, lines A, B, and C, B, and A sort of form this uh, sort of poetic narrative right here in verse 4. Uh, but suffice it to say that when you see uh, the generations um, language, 
This is the first time that language is used, and this becomes a, a way in which we can divide the entire book of Genesis. Eleven times this phrase, these are the generations of, that is a transitional phrase getting us from one section to the next section. And it usually takes us from a broad section into a more specific, narrowed topic. So in this case, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Takes us from the larger creation of six days and God's day of rest into the specific days of days three and six. Uh, the next one, these are the generations of Adam. Then the next one, these are the generations of Noah. And then these are the generations of Shem. And then these are the generations of Abraham. And then these are the generations. You'll see that thread if you want to track Genesis and be able to outline it, follow that thread. It's the Hebrew word toledot, and it gives us uh, some sort of, a, of an idea of what the author's trying to accomplish. Uh, let me just belabor this point for just a second, because the toledot formula, the generations formula, takes the previous broad topic introduced in that section and narrows it in order to get us to the next narrow section. So from the general day six creation, the first Toledot formula in Genesis 2, 4 zeroes in on the more specific creation aspect. And then this literary division continues down from creation to Adam to Noah to Shem to Abraham all the way down to Jacob's 12 sons. And you can divide the book of Genesis in that way. So why does this even matter to us? Because Moses was recording this history and he was reporting it to who? Who's the intended audience of Genesis? This is children of Israel who were just freshly crossed through dry on the, you know, through the Red Sea. And were at the mountain of God. And they were hearing this history for the first time as revealed from God to Moses and given to them while they were in the wilderness. God was telling them Revealing himself in creation to this generation that was supposed to go into the promised land so they could orient themselves. So they could know where they fit within the worldwide population and reorient themselves from 400 years of slavery into um, God's people entering into the promised land. And it matters because not only is God revealing himself in creation, but in these sort of generations formula, we can see the preservation of God's people that trace the promise of the Messiah. See, after the fall, in a couple of weeks, we'll get to Genesis 3, and in the cursing of Satan, and the cursing of woman, and the cursing of man, and that cursing of the ground, and all those things, even in the midst of God's punishment, there is the promise of one coming who would reverse the curse of sin and crush the head of the serpent. That's one of the purposes of the genealogies that all of you have memorized, right? And every time you get to these places in Genesis, you're like, oh, my favorite, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so I mean, sometimes we skip those, right? But, but there's, there's depth in there. And let me just help you see the depth here. Because with every generation, with every Toledot, with every thus began the generations of so-and-so, the question hangs out there for those who are experiencing it. Will this child be the one? Will Seth be the one who replaced Abel? 
will Lamech be the one? Will this next one be the one who saves? All the way down to Genesis 5, when Lamech had lived 182 years, in verse 29 it says, He called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Every generation was under the burden and curse of sin, experiencing the same darkness that we experience in our culture today, perhaps even more wicked, so violent, Genesis 6 says, that God uh, was sad in his heart that he created man and determined to wipe us out with a flood. All of us under the burden of sin and wickedness and evil there was a hope that this one, maybe this one would bring us relief. Maybe this one would be the Savior. And for each generation, each time there's a new Toledot, it, it narrowed the pool of candidates, right? So we go from Abraham being chosen from all the families of the earth. We go from Shem, so you get the word Semite or anti-Semitic, uh, from Shem, right? The, one of the three sons of Noah. And then we get from him to Terah. Then we get from Terah to Abraham. And then from Abraham, it's narrowed to Jacob, uh, to Isaac, to Jacob. And then finally, out of all of Jacob's 12 sons, it's narrowed to Judah. So the family line has gone from, will this child be the one who saves us from the worldwide population to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah and then now we get into David and David is promised that from your generations from your family line there will never cease to be a king who sits on the throne and we we have that beautiful picture of David's family line right Rahab uh, you know, the, the prostitute who um, saved the spies um, in Jericho uh, becomes one of David's great-grandfathers. Ruth, right? The, the Moabite. This checkered history that Jesus the Messiah is glad to say he's a part of that line, humanly speaking. All of them looking forward to the Savior who would come from the line of David. So much so <clears throat> that when Jesus is born and in, to Mary in Luke 1, verses 31 through 33, the promise from the angel is, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, made this prophecy, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Even the announcement to the shepherds in the fields, Come to the city of David and see the Savior who is born. Simeon, Anna, my eyes have seen your salvation. Matthew 12, and Jesus in, into his ministry, healing a demon possessed man, and the crowds were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? You see how this formula finds its beginnings in Genesis with these are the generations of? That's a signal that the Savior is coming. And that the people were waiting and longing and asking, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Don't skip those genealogies, right? 
Don't skip those. You see the purpose of God and the preservation, the careful preservation, and the real life people. These weren't myths or legends or fables or made up people. These are real people that they could trace their generations back to a real Adam and Eve. Look at verse 5. Uh, <clears throat> we get some explanation uh, about um, the vegetation. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Uh, you might see in this verse some sort of contradiction to day 3 when um, all the earth ex- uh, experienced the sprouting of vegetation. This verse doesn't uh, contradict that. This verse depicts the vocation of farming the land for food production. And you can see that uh, through the distinctions of the words bushes and small plants, the qualifier, there's no man to work the ground, no sort of irrigation. He's not talking about the land being filled with vegetation. It was filled with vegetation. He's talking about the specific farm producing, crop producing, uh, agrarian way that um, Adam was to live. The vegetation was was present at day three throughout the earth, uh, but verse five points to the fact that the systematic process of food production had not happened at that time. Uh, verse five is not describing random plants on the earth, but the intentional cultivation of the ground for production of food. I remember a house we rented in Hatboro, and I was mowing at one time, and this little vine sprouted up and I didn't cut it, and the owner lived a couple of doors down, and he came over and he said, hey, don't cut that. Let's see what happens. <laughs> I was like, all right. So for a month or so, I didn't cut it, and it just became this huge vine, and after two or three months, it just produced some kind of melon. I don't know what it was, but some kind of melon, and I wasn't going to taste it or eat it, but it sure was a neat experience, but it was not purposeful. It was not planned. It was deposited probably for some animal. I don't want to get detailed, but, but it just happened in the ground, and, uh, and this is kind of like what verse 5 is describing, that there was no intentional cultivation for plant-producing uh, irrigation that was taking place. Uh, Verse 6 says, A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Uh, This is going to give us some insight into the pre-flood atmosphere. Some of you read Genesis and you're like, how are people living for six, seven hundred years? And and how is all this sort of, what's the significance of these dinosaurs and the giants? and What's going on here in this pre-flood antediluvian world? Well, the clue is, uh, back in Genesis 1, uh, in the creation account, remember on day 2, there's the description of the separation between the waters above and the waters below, and he called that expanse between the waters above and the waters below, he called it sky or heavens. And so in the pre-flood, the antediluvian world, there is this idea that there was some sort of a vapor water canopy that protected the outer atmosphere, whether it was of ice or whether it was some sort of a water canopy. Uh, What it did was it created an earth atmosphere that had multiple times the um, oxygen content in a pressurized environment. Uh, if you want to think about this, uh, you may have heard about a, what's called a hyperbaric chamber. Um, they use this in the medical field a lot. Anybody ever been in a hyperbaric chamber? Um, yeah, just one guy. I'll have to ask you about your experience. But what it does is it's a highly pressurized environment uh, with 
two times, at least two times, the oxygen content. Do you remember baby Jessica that fell down the well uh, back in the day, back way before I was born in the 80s? Uh, but, right, uh, when she fell down the well and they recovered her after several days, an uh, um, uh, infant Jessica, maybe 18 months old, fell down, a, I think it was like a six or eight inch pipe. Uh, and it took days to get her out. It was a huge deal in Texas. Anybody remember that? Uh, I don't. I wasn't born yet. You know. uh, but um, when they got her out, her leg had been pinned behind her head. Oh, that's awkward. I'm sorry. So your face is cringe. Um, when they got her out, they thought, we got to amputate her leg immediately. And, and one doctor said, well, before we go chopping stuff off, why don't we put her in this hyperbaric chamber. When they did, within two days, all circulation was restored and she, her, her entire leg was saved. This environment that was oxygen-rich, highly pressurized, that's what the pre-flood world looked like. We have clues about this. Uh, in Genesis 7, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 7, 11 through 12, in Noah's life, on the second month, on the 17th day of the month, it says that when the flood began, it's, listen to this clearly, there was no rain yet, but it says on that day, we, we have these sort of pictures of Noah's ark that it's sprinkled, and then for a period of time, the sprinkling kind of filled up, and it just gently kind of rocked this like happy animal boat, right? <laughs> This was not the case at all. This was a horrible, terrible event. And you can hear it really clearly in Genesis 7, 11 through 12. Um, on that day, the 17th day of the month in the 600th year of Noah's life, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. So you have all this massive water. Think about those geysers in the north, northwest uh, part of the United States. Uh, think about those geysers all over the planet. All the seismic activity when the great fountains of the deep burst forth all over the planet. And then it says the windows of the heavens were opened, indicating that maybe by some sort of asteroid or comet or something burst that water canopy above that caused it to rain for the first time for 40 days and 40 nights, not just a local torrential downpour, but a worldwide collapse of that canopy that for 40 days and 40 nights, water is coming up from the bottom and water is coming down from the top, creating an entirely different world afterward. There's a reason why... Uh, men and women only lived to 120 years after the flood, where before the flood, in that incredible environment, there were hundreds and hundreds of years. Can you imagine what you could do with 600 years of life in that environment? One uh, doctor in Japan tried to recreate this environment with a cherry tomato plant. You know those cherry tomatoes that you eat on your salad? Uh, this particular doctor tried to recreate this oxygen-rich environment with the filter of the UV sun rays, and this plant uh, ended up growing to over 50 feet tall and producing over 50,000 cherry tomatoes that were the size of baseballs. They had to move it to a shopping mall because it grew so high and over its lifetime produced so much fruit. They had to stabilize it with um, scaffolding. It's incredible what this sort of environment looked like. I went way too long on that point, but I kind of geeked out a little bit. 
Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So as we continue back in Genesis 2, verse 7, we see now that there's a different, um, there's a deepening of the understanding of how God created mankind on the first day. And it's, it's different from the process of animal life. Uh, with animal life, God spoke and they were. God said, giraffe, stretch out your neck. And, you know, there it was, and rhino, and hippo, and kangaroo, and all the animals, they spoke them into existence. But with, with mankind, it was different. He fashioned them and formed him from the dust of the ground. Uh, have you ever been to a funeral and they say, ashes to ashes, and what? Dust to dust, right? It's this, this general understanding in this phrase that our body is made from dust and from dust it will, to dust it will return. This body that houses your eternal soul dwells in a vulnerable body of dust. It's corruptible, temporary, housing your eternal spirit, your soul. This body will fade out and return to the material from which it was created. But what makes this body of dust special and unique and different from all the other animals and uh, life created is this phrase, the breath of life that God breathed into Adam. This breath uh, animated this dead body and took what was once lifeless, completely formed, and this breath of God, this breath of life, animates him and gives him life. And this has incredible theological and practical significance for us today because we're described as what? Before we're in Christ, we are dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions, dead like Lazarus in the tomb, dead like Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37, prophesy to the dead bones and say, these bones come to life. This is the process by which the breath of life, uh, the regeneration of a dead sinner, finds new life in Christ. Not just naturally at Genesis 2, but also uh, spiritually uh, when we become saved. Our dead body is brought to life through this breath of God. The same idea, the ruach is the breath. It's also the same word for the Holy Spirit. The breath of God that animates our dead bodies is the same breath of life uh, develop, uh, envisioned in the Holy Spirit. Um, so Adam was this mold. He was a statue. He was a form. He was lifeless and empty. And, and, and God breathed life into him. Verse 8 and 9, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Eden is a region. Uh, and so in the region of Eden, God planted a garden in the east. East of what? East of the promised land, right? Where Moses is talking to the children of Israel. They're, they're uh, coming out of Egypt. And so in the east, east of um, Egypt and east of the promised land, God had planted a garden in Eden. And that's where he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. He says the tree of the life, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and so is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God plants this garden in, the, in, in, in Eden, and uh, verses 10 through 14 try to help us understand where it is. It's by the uh, it, one river flows out, and from it become four rivers, uh, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Uh, I've tried 
to try to find where the Garden of Eden is. Fascinated by it, but could never identify it in the uh, post-flood world. Some of these land features might have been obscured in some way. But we know that it's in Mesopotamia somewhere, east of uh, Israel. And we know a few things about the Garden of Eden. Uh, the word itself means paradise or delight. And so it was a, a wonderful place that God planted by himself. It was mankind's first home. And by the way, it was also his first job. Um, we often think of work as a uh, result of the fall, right? Well, Adam and Eve sinned, and so now we have to go to work, right? That's what you think every Monday. I take Mondays off, and so every Monday I was playing golf with a guy last Monday, and I said, man, I'm so glad to see all these cars and trucks on the highway going to work, and here I am on a tee box, right? Um, you may think that work is a curse on Mondays, and, and Mondays is like my Saturdays for many of you. And, and so um, the, the, the plan was work hard six days and rest for the seventh, and that was before the fall. So work is a good thing. Work is a benefit. It was man, Eden was mankind's first home, but it was also his first job. By the way, this idea carries over into the New Testament so that in the church we hear verses like this. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business and work with your hands. Isn't that a great verse? Memorize that in the NIV. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to work with your hands, um, and to, um, to mind your own business so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you won't be dependent on anyone. See, the point was, uh, when people heard that Jesus is coming back, they just quit their jobs and they just sat on the rooftops waiting for Jesus to come back. And it was such a problem that Paul wrote that in the first letter to the Thessalonians. But in the second letter to the Thessalonians, he warns, he says that even when we were with you, we gave you this command, if any of you within this church don't want to work, then you're not going to eat. We're not going to give handouts to people who are just sitting there doing nothing. Listen, work is a benefit. To the degree that the New Testament describes, Paul to Timothy says that if a man does not provide for his family, the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Listen, there is no room in the biblical economy for us to be slackers or sluggards or to not be hard workers. Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and to tend it. And this was a good thing from God. It contained a variety of all kinds of trees. Um, <clears throat> there were all kinds of animals there. Adam's going to go and, and he's, going to, um, he's going to name all these animals in the next section uh, as he's um, seeking. But the point is that this Eden was this gorgeous place filled with gemstones and abundance of trees and resources and food. Uh, what's your favorite place you've ever visited on vacation? Julie and I kind of became national park people <laughs> a couple years ago. Uh, we visited uh, friends in, in, in San Francisco, and we rented a car one day, and we drove out to Yosemite. And we were told to go into the park and to kind of don't look up and, and wait until you go around the bend through the tunnel and get to the upper parking lot so that you have what's called tunnel view. I think I even have a picture of it here, um, this idea of tunnel view. Did that come through, Ryan? The anticipation, right? Uh, this is what's called tunnel view. And, and, and here in tunnel view, you have this uh, wonderful picture of, um, of this waterfall that turns bright red when the sun hits it. Just one 
point, time of the year. It's this incredible valley. You have El Capitan on the left. Uh, you have Half Dome way up on the right, the tallest peak you can see there. Just a breathtaking place. I, I don't think I'd ever been anywhere uh, more beautiful than this particular place. Um, if we could have spent a week there, we would have. And, and then we got this fever and we wanted to go visit you know, uh, Arches National Park and we wanted to go visit the Grand Canyon and we wanted to go visit all these great places. How many of you have been to a lot of national parks? Right? It's incredible. But imagine the Garden of Eden as a place more beautiful than the most beautiful place you've been to. And one of the prominent features of this Garden of Eden were the trees. The text tells us that the Lord God made trees to spring up. And I did a, a weird deep dive into trees this week. I asked the question, what kind of trees are good for food and what are the best foods that we get from trees? Uh, I bet many of you could name 20, but I developed a list of over 100 trees uh, that we get food from. Apple, orange, banana, pear, fig, pomegranate, grape, plum, cherry, peach, pecan, mulberry, avocado, apricot, lemon, walnut, almond, nectarine, pawpaw, persimmon, guava, chestnut, olive, papaya, nectarine, coconut, filbert, key lime, lime, mayha, plantain, maple, ginkgo, hawthorn, oak, quince, grapefruit, pineapple, kiwi, mango, nut trees, berry trees, trees that have edible bark, and all their varieties, kumquat, gooseberry. The list goes on and on and on again, and a ton that I can't even name. And this was probably just what we have available in our region, not to mention what was available in the Garden of Eden. But there were two unique trees there. The tree of life is in the midst of it. it must have been a prominent tree in the garden. Um, eating on that tree would confer immortality to um, Adam and Eve. As we see in Genesis 3, verse 22, God had to block off that tree with an angel who held a flaming sword that you know, went back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Um, there was also the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God named them. He designated them for this special purpose. Now, John MacArthur tells us that these, these trees, specifically the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, didn't necessarily possess any magical properties that were capable of bestowing some sort of knowledge on Adam. It simply served in a symbolic capacity to provide Adam with a tangible test of obedience. By eating of the forbidden fruit, Adam would gain a deadly and irreversible experiential knowledge of evil. So God places Adam and Eve, verses 15 through 17, in the Garden of Eden and gives them these instructions. You can eat from any tree you want to, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the first negative command. You shall die in the day that you eat of it. The first prohibition. Up until now, it's all gas, no brakes, green lights everywhere, beautiful place everywhere, and then all of a sudden there's this new word, die and death. The first hint of danger the first place of risk. The instruction is given to Adam, not to Eve. This is before the creation of Eve. He was to transmit that command to her. And I often wonder what was Adam's interaction with the tree like? Somebody ever told you, hey, don't go near that, right? What do you want to do? Just kind of want to gravitate toward it, right? Um, you ever seen cows grazing in a field and they have this incredibly beautiful, lush, field of food and their head is strained through a barbed wire fence to eat weeds out by the roadside. Have you ever thought that? Why? Why do they do that? Why do they go for that which is just beyond and out of bounds and out of reach? I wonder if Adam 
And listen, God made us not as a robot. He gave us with the will, the ability to make a choice, to choose obedience or to choose disobedience. Adam might have had to walk by that tree every day on his sort of morning commute around the garden. I'm not sure how it was, but I don't know if he hung out near it or if he touched the fruit or if he edged closer and closer and closer. In our sin nature, we tend to gravitate toward that which is forbidden in an unhealthy way. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see Adam and Eve's deadly interaction with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, let me close with this application. Um, Genesis 2 gives us a glimpse of this ideal world and environment that God originally designed for humanity. It's beautiful, has all the provisions, but don't lose the idea that the most important prominent feature of the Garden of Eden was the presence of God in it presence of God walking in the midst of it. It was a garden where God and man dwelt together. They dwelt together uniquely. Adam and Eve had no clothes on, right? So that's kind of weird for us. But they knew no shame. They knew no guilt. They knew no, there was no barrier between them and God. They were able to be completely free in the presence of God in this incredible environment. Listen, We can't go back to that original Eden. And I'll just be honest, it was hard for me this week to even connect with Eden. So hard for me to even think through what that must have been like because I have no actual realistic concept. All I know is a world of sin, right? All I know is a world of evil and darkness and wickedness. But but what was more tangible to me was not what Eden was, but what Eden will be in Revelation 20. So just turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20, verses, uh, chapters 20, 21, and 22, very end of the Bible, you see all these same themes that were introduced in Genesis 1 uh, coming back around in the end. In Revelation chapter 20, We find Satan defeated. This serpent that entered into the garden is now cast out and defeated. Uh, in verse 7, in, in verse um, 10, the devil who has deceived them is thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there is the final destruction of the serpent introduced in the garden. In verse 11, there is a great white throne of judgment. And from his presence, the created earth and sky fled away and there was no place for them. So the the creation of the earth and sky in day two and day one in Genesis one is now done away with in Revelation 20. Books of life are opened. The dead are judged according to what they had done. The sea, there's the same idea of water in the Re- Revelation 20 and, 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 and Genesis 1. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Each one was judged. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What happens next in Genesis 2? A bride is prepared for her husband. 
We're going to read about that next week. This bride is presented to her husband, and now this new um, heaven, a new earth, a people prepared is presented. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. This is the recreation account. This is the future Eden that God is giving us. He says in verse 6, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. In all these ways, we see the recreation of Eden in our future. It goes on and on and on. All through chapter 22, the new Jerusalem, the river of life, um, Jesus coming, His return. There is no temple in the city for it needs no sun or moon. It needs no light for the glory of God gives it its light. All of these things that we see come to fruition in Revelation 20. And so it's not as fruitful for us to look backward at the Garden of Eden as much as it is important for you and I to get our eschatology right that we will one day dwell again in the presence of God with all of His redeemed from all of the world, from all the nations, and we will be back with Him again. But until that day, until we realize that greater Eden, there is a sense in which your own life can resemble the sort of mini Garden of Eden. You think, what are you talking about, Gibson? Is this some kind of weird new age idea? I'm a garden now. and uh, Just let me tease this out for a second. In Christ, we see these shadows and echoes of the future Garden of Eden today. Um, The already not yet. The paradise of the new creation within us. In the old Eden, God dwelt with man. But in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Right? The presence of God walks within you, lives within you, dwells within you. In the old Eden, there was a tree of life. In Christ, we have been raised from the dead ways of sin, and we've been given new life. We have been partakers of eternal life in Christ. And we're promised that we will one day eat from the tree of life. A river flowed from the Garden of Eden uh, for us. Jesus said in John 7, Whoever, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this about the Holy Spirit in whom those who believed in him were to receive. That means that if you are in Christ, there is a flowing river of life from within you. You've been made alive by the Spirit. In the old Eden, Adam and Eve were to work the garden, tending it and giving care and effort to maintain it. And in Christ today, we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's supposed to, we're supposed to tend to our soul and to our spirit and to our body and exercise discipline and self-control and pursuing God and, and in all these ways, work out our sanctification. We're to abide in Christ so that we may be a fruit-bearing, well-pruned branch. We're to do labor within the king's kingdom within the vineyard. In the old Eden, these trees bore amazing fruit. In Christ, Galatians 5, you bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
In Psalm 1, 1 through 3, we read that those who um, order their lives according to the word of God are like trees planted by a stream of water that yields fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither and prospers. Does your life look like a garden? (laughs) Does it look like chaotic wilderness? Or does it look like the garden of God? When people get to know you, do they see and pluck the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do they get a taste of the presence of God when they're around you? Do they drink from living waters? We can't go back to the original garden, and we can't go to Eden yet, the future and better Eden, but today we can experience a portion of it as we abide in Christ. And to that end, may we pursue it and look forward to it until then. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together today. And we thank you for your word and how it stirs us and moves us and draws us closer to you. As we consider the environment and the creation and all the aspects of the original Eden and created world, help us not to look back on the way it could have been, but to rather look forward to the day in which it will be sweeter when those who experience the curse and separation from sin and the death of Christ that redeems us and regenerates us, that the day that you present the bride of Christ to the spotless lamb who was slain, that on that day, the marriage feast of the lamb, what a glorious day it will be. But until that day, would you help us to live in such a way that we bring you honor and glory and majesty. Their lives can be a reflection of that hope so that as we prepare for our future in Christ, future with Christ, that we may look more and more like you today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.